This is episode 170 with Dr. Brett Hill. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on your impactful journey. Dr. Brett Hill is a health and wellness expert and is host of some of Australia's top-rated health podcasts. He's a resilience mentor, functional nutrition coach, chiropractor, public speaker, and author of numerous books and e-books. He regularly appears on TV, radio, and in print, and his media appearances, seminars, coaching, and consulting have inspired thousands of people over the last decade to live a long, happy, healthy life full of energy and vitality. In this episode, we discuss when Brett hit rock bottom in his life and how he developed resilience and clarity from this space, what his tips are for others who have hit rock bottom, what optimal health means to him and what you can focus on to support your optimal health and well-being, what resilience means to him and how you can become more resilient, the dichotomy of the health sagas that we're experiencing in Australia at the moment due to misleading information and black and white thinking, and plenty more about health and wellness from a practical standpoint and in realistic ways that we can all thrive regardless of our circumstances. If you're keen to make progress and impactful change in your life, then I've got a few ways that I can support you on that. So I'm running online challenges to support you to thrive in different areas of health, mindset, and overall well-being. And you can follow when those are happening on my website or on social media. So brettrobbo.com is the website or following me at brettrobbocoach on Facebook or Instagram. And for the first time, I am running a women's only online program called Up Level. Put yourself first and take your health, wealth and relationships to the next level. This program came about and it was designed by popular demand from some of the legendary ladies in my community who kept reaching out and saying, Robbo, we see what you're doing for the guys and those men's program. Can you put something together for us? So I've done that and it's for driven women who want to get the most out of life. Remember, it's called Up Level. Put yourself first and take your health, wealth and relationships to the next level. So it kicks off September 27th and you can find all the info at brettrobbo.com forward slash up level. And I have my final breakthrough program for the year kicking off October 18th. This is my men's only program and this is the third time I've run it this year and I'm running it again because I've had amazing results from all of the participants, all of the guys getting massive breakthroughs, creating a lot of clarity and um, this is designed for busy male business owners, leaders and managers who want to smash their business and career and personal goals without the stress and burnout. So guys, you can check out all the info at brettrobbo.com forward slash breakthrough program. And for those two programs, I have the hyperlinks in the show notes to this episode. So you can just go into the show notes and click on that and it'll go straight to that page with all the info. 
Okay, now let's hear from the legend himself, Dr. Brett Hill. Dr. Brett Hill, welcome to Your Life of Impact. Thanks, mate. Thanks for having me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be on board and uh, nice to be connecting with people all over the world. Yeah, absolutely. It sure is. Now, you're a health and wellness expert, and I'm really keen to dive into health aspects shortly, but I want to um, start it off because, and talking about uh, resilience, because you're also a well-known speaker and mentor in the space of resilience, and your latest book that you've released is called Rock Bottom, how to not only survive, but thrive through personal and professional stress. Personally, I love that title. I haven't read the book yet, but I love that title because I'm always talking about thriving. And even when the pandemic hit last year, I did a series of podcast episodes with guests and with myself about how do we thrive through the challenging times, even when it is challenging. And it sounds like that's what this book is all about. So I'd love to hear what what brought the book on? What was rock bottom for you? And um, share a little bit about that journey. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, what ultimately brought the book on was me getting divorced. Um, so my rock bottom was certainly um, not when I got divorced, but shortly after I got divorced. Uh, so um, I often say to people, look, the I think my rock bottom was, um, as I said, not caused by my divorce, but caused by the way I reacted to my divorce and what I did about my divorce, which was, uh, you know, really delving in and um, trying to fix things uh, as, as us blokes are prone to do and uh, and really beating myself up about it. So, uh, you know, getting to the point where I, I sort of hit that rock bottom was more about me trying to, you know, fix and uh, and get to the bottom of this problem and trying to solve it as quickly as I could and, and all the pressure and expectation, I guess, I put on myself uh, along that journey, particularly being someone who had previously spoken a lot about health and wellness and resilience and all these sort of topics. Um, and so... That was my rock bottom was was shortly after that happened. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I'm sorry to hear about that. But was was the divorce something that came a bit of a shock or was the relationship um, sort of showing signs of a bit of a rocky road? Yeah. So, look, no need to apologize because um, I don't have a problem with it. It was, uh, as I said, something that I did in the end manage to thrive through. Um, and I'm in a great space in my life now and, and I am remarried and, uh you know, have have three wonderful kids and all that sort of stuff. So um, there's certainly nothing there to uh, to apologise for. Um, I'm Brilliant. I can honestly look back at it now and say I'm really glad that it happened um, and that it was a positive in my life, not a negative. Um, but if you type if you said that to me at the time, I probably would have wanted to. You know, it would have felt I wouldn't have because I'm not violent, but I would have felt like punching in the face <laughs> because you know that's just not where I was at at the time. Um, so you know, it is definitely. Um, yeah, something I look back on uh, somewhat fondly in terms of not the incident that happened and the pain that occurred at the time, but certainly the growth that's come from that. Um, now, there was a second part to your question, and I've totally forgotten what it was. Same, because I was thinking about where we we're going to go with that. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, what it was is about the uh, the relationship. Was it was it a shock to to you, or was the relationship? And oh, the reason yeah, I ask that is to to not say to get the inside scope of your relationship, but just thinking about people listening and and how um, how relationships tend to you know, go a certain way with either known or unknown and we try to deny those kind of things. So how, how was, was the relationship the, yeah, yeah. before the, the final call? 
Yeah, so look, it was a shock to me. Um, I, you know, sort of later found out that it had been, you know, on my ex's mind for, for at least six months. Um, and, uh, and and other people seemingly kind of knew that and I didn't. Um, so that, that was certainly, you know, no doubt a reflection of um, and me and where I was at. You know, I was very busy in my life at the time doing lots of different things um, and trying to, I guess, um, you know, please lots of different masters at the time in, in lots of different areas, whether that was sort of family or whether that was work or whether that was professionally, um, you know, in terms of, you know, my friends, all that sort of stuff, you know, I was, I was getting stretched in lots of different directions and, and probably wasn't as present and mindful as I should have been. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was definitely a shock to me. It was like literally just coming home one night, um, thinking everything was good. Cause from my perspective, it was good. You know, I was, I was happy in the relationship. Um, and then, yeah, literally just sitting down one night saying, look, Brett, you know, there's something I've got to tell you. And, uh, you know, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And that was just, yeah, totally blindsided to me. So, you know, from that point, it was like, I think three days later, um, where, where my ex had asked me to move out, um, you know, three weeks later, where she, where she'd asked me to find my own place. And I ended up in a, you know, in a small unit, um, you know, some, some time away from where I'd been with the family and, um, yeah, just sort of sitting back going, what just happened? Uh, so yeah, definitely it was a shock to me, you know, looking back, obviously, you know, you can see that there were uh, things with the relationship that weren't perfect. Uh, but certainly, at least in my mind, I, I didn't think there were things there that were irreparable or, or, you know, heading us in that direction. So it was definitely a big shock to me. What, what was it then that got you through? So you're, you're happily married again now and you already had the children and, you know, things are great and you are thriving. What were some of the key things that you turned to that, uh, that helped you get through that? And, and, and second part to that question, and we'll both have to remember it this time, is, <laughs> is, it, is it that you can actually thrive through those times or is it that we do everything that we can, but we might not feel like we're thriving as opposed to throwing in the towel and then trying to catch up later. So what yeah. was it that you did? And then do you actually believe that um, that we can thrive in those struggling times? Because you told me that you punched me in the face if I said that to you. <laughs> Even yeah, though you totally. wouldn't, that's how you might have felt. So, you know, I think a lot of us, regardless of, you know, whether it's relationship challenges or breakups or business challenges or whatever it might be. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there are a number of things that got me through. I mean, first of all, I think I was in a very fortunate position that I had been, you know, involved in this health and wellness space for a long time prior to that. Um, you know, I'd been doing my podcast, I'd interviewed, you know, world leading experts from all over the world um, in many different areas of health and wellness and mindset and resilience and all those different topics. So, you know, I was in a really fortunate position, you know, even just my friends and my colleagues, you know, being a chiropractor, I was just constantly surrounded by people who do have a great mindset around this kind of stuff. So, you know, I had a lot of, I guess, knowledge there. Um, and in some ways that was a blessing and in some ways it was a curse, you know, kind of a blessing because, uh, you know, I had all the tools there right at hand and, and in some ways a curse because, you know, I felt like I should know how to do it and, and it should just be, you know, I should just be able to fix it like that and it'll all be better. Um, and so there's probably a bit of pressure and expectation I put on myself as a result of that. But but that, those tools, you know, ultimately once I sort of, you know, figured out the process I needed to go through and figure out where I was at and what I needed to do were ultimately yeah, really beneficial to me. Um, I was also yeah, very fortunate to be surrounded by some really, really great friends. Um, you know, whether that be you know, my best mate, Andrew, who I don't think he and I ever even really spoke that much about me getting divorced, but he was just always there. 
you know. Um, and then the flip side of that was probably my two uh, best female friends. Um, so uh, Kim Morrison and JC, uh, who is a chiropractor in Newcastle, amazing chiropractor. And uh, and those two were probably more of the, uh, you know, the sounding boards, the two that would, you know, talk to me a lot, check in on me, call me out on my shit when I was, you know, heading in the wrong direction. Um, you know, th th those friends and support, that support network that I had around me um, was really important, you know, because I, you, you do find when you go through something like this, you tend to get a lot of messages of support in the first week um, and then a lot less of those in the sort of third week or the third month. Uh, but those two in particular were just, yeah, phenomenal supports to me. Um, and so then, but then, you know, the, the third thing I guess that really helped me turn it around was, was literally just hitting that rock bottom uh, and the, I guess, the aha that came from that. So, you know, the, the aha that came from that, I guess, was that I had an opportunity to totally reassess the way I was doing things and the way I was looking at things and the way I was perceiving things. Um, and, and that's the sort of, I guess, the gift that you get from hitting rock bottom. So, you know, when I say I would have been you know, not happy about being challenged on some of that sort of stuff in the early days, um, and, and that was, I think, in hindsight, when I wasn't dealing with it well, you know, when I wasn't heading in the right direction and doing the things that I would talk to people about and recommend people do in my book, um, because, you know, in many ways, this, the story of the book is kind of like, you know, don't do what I did. <laughs> There's a better way to do it. You know, do what I did later, not what I did at the start, uh, because, um, you know, hopefully it can help save some pain. Um, especially for guys out there, but I know that a lot of the readers of the book have been girls as well, who um, it turns out relate to the book far more than I, I guess I kind of expected them to. Um, and so, uh, you know, th there's a journey there that you can learn from and hopefully shortcut that process a little bit too. So it sounds like a lot of it was environment that helped you through that. And, you know, knowing that you've got that support network and everything, because the knowledge is all well and good, but if we don't apply the knowledge, then, you know, it's, it's um, just another tool in the tool belt until it's ready to be used. But having that environment, that surrounding of the, the people with the right mindsets can really help to, um, to shift things there as well. What were, um, when you say that, you know, you hit rock bottom and even that was the turning point and that was the aha moment. But earlier you said you tried to fix a lot of things. When you're in the fixing mindset, do you think you're in more of denial as opposed to acceptance of what was happening? Uh, no, I don't think I was in denial of, I'm oh, no, sorry, I was at some stage, I was probably was in denial of what was happening. Uh, but I think for the most part, when I was in that fixing mindset, I was sort of, I was relatively well, well, I think I was well aware of the external problems um, and maybe not as well aware of the internal problems is probably the most accurate answer to that. Like I was well aware of, you know, the problems in terms of the relationship and what had gone wrong. And, you know, as I said, you know, probably hyper aware of what I might've done wrong and, uh, and, and what I should have been doing to fix it. And, um, but in, in, often what, in many ways coming from that sort of, I guess, unhealthy place of just pressure and expectation of wanting to fix that and fix it quickly um, it was almost like I was doing all the right things. You know, I had all of the knowledge there, um, but I was doing them from an unhealthy place. And so I was, you know, rather than them being positive and constructive, they were sort of negative and destructive, um, you know, even to the point of, you know, like I've seen photos of myself now in that phase of my life. And I was like ridiculously lean, you know, because I just, you know, I was always trying to control the things I could control. And I knew how to control my diet. I knew how to control my exercise. You know, I knew how to control those things. And so I was doing those almost to an excess. You know, it's hard to imagine sort of doing good things to an excess, but it, but it kind of was like it was obsessing a little bit about that because that was what I could control and what I could do, um, but to the detriment of, um, you know, going inside and, and dealing with, I guess, perhaps some of the bigger and deeper issues as well. 
Yeah, interesting. That's um, it makes makes a lot of sense. And you you say now that you look back at that as uh, one of the best things that's happened to you, and where you're you're really happy now. And you know, rock bottom. I love the saying though, and I'd like to hear your um, view on this. You know, don't wait for the tsunami in your life. So my question to you yeah. is: Do you believe that people need to hit rock bottom to be able to? thrive and and be at their best yeah it's a great question and i really passionately believe that they don't (laughs) you know i really passionately believe that there is a lot that you can do to prepare yourself for you know whatever comes along and and really you know as i said a lot of my sort of I guess thinking and processing, even leading up to that point, had been around that. Is how can we create more resilient humans? You know, as a chiropractor, that's what we do in practice. Is all about you know creating more resilient humans so they can deal with the world around them and, and not waiting until the you know until they fall apart. I mean, I see in practice you know kids from you know weeks old you know right through because they're saying, well, hey, let's let's look after these people, let's get them healthy, let's get them functioning well, so that then they can thrive through life and not have to hopefully hit rock bottom. Um, so I think, you know, if you're, if you're really aware and you're really conscious about what you're doing, um, then you can learn from the little things, you know, rather than waiting for the big things. You know, you can learn from the little scratch rather than waiting for the, you know, sledgehammer across the back of the head. And, and I think that is, that is really the way to do it is to be really conscious of what's going on in the world around you. You know, particularly, I think, conscious of what triggers you. Um, because those triggers are really the keys and the insights, you know. And so if something little happens that triggers you, that's your that's your opportunity to say, hey, what's that all about? You know, why did I react in that way to that thing that was seemingly not that big? Um, because that's the little, that's the hint the universe is giving you that, hey, there's something here that you're not dealing with. There's something here you're not prepared for. And if you don't deal with it now and, and sort of find out what that little trigger is, then you're just going to keep getting bigger and bigger opportunities to learn. I love that because uh, a lot of the work that I do with people are working when they get exposed to, when you're actually uh, not challenged to, but invited to find out and explore and be brutally honest with what your triggers are. And then we talk about uh, minimizing or eliminating them. It doesn't mean running away from them or pushing them away. It actually means moving into them and finding out why, why is that, that person or that voice or that job or the weather or this um, certain aspect of the pandemic, whatever it is, why is that an actual trigger for you? And let's explore. There's no right or wrong to it, but let's explore why. And then, you know, taking brutal honesty of, well, is that how you want to live? If you if you hear that person, if you see that person, if you look at those facts, is it is it the fear? Is it the anger? Is it the resentment that you want to be in? No, okay, let's look at, well, how do we shift your perception of that? Because the trigger will, the external trigger will always be there, but how it affects you will significantly change. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the people that was really uh, important to me along my journey uh, was Byron Katie. I don't know if you're familiar with the absolutely. work by Byron Katie. The work. And so those those four questions that she asked really encapsulate, I think, what you just said. You know, the first is, is it true? Can you be absolutely certain that it's true? Um, and for those who haven't explored those two questions, um, they are really powerful you know and and it's you know you keep keep asking yourself that question and you'll be surprised at the answer you get but then you know that the other side of that is then you know who am i when i believe that to be true um, and who would i be if i didn't believe that to be true and i think that's exactly what you're talking about there you know that opportunity to 
perceive things differently um, and to be differently in that environment is really where all the growth comes from. And, and that's where, as I said, if you can learn that from the small triggers rather than waiting for the big triggers, then that's really your opportunity to learn and grow potentially without having to hit rock bottom um, and, and to learn to thrive even better um, through yeah, whatever happens to be going on in the world around you. You mentioned there before resilience. What does resilience actually mean to you um, in, in terms of the way that you've experienced it and the way that you speak about it? What, what does resilience actually mean? Yeah, so I think resilience is just the, the opportunity to thrive through life, as we mentioned before. So you know, people often think of resilience as you know, being strong enough to avoid getting knocked down, um, you know, to avoid negative consequences, I guess. But I think there's more to resilience than that. As I said, you know, it's one thing to be able to, um, to survive through challenging times, but I think it's a totally different thing to be able to thrive through challenging times. And so I think, you know, the ability to be able to do that, um, yes, it, you know, it comes down to not just your physical resilience, you know, not just your mental resilience, but it's it's all aspects of your health. You know, it's your diet, it's your lifestyle, it's your exercise, it's your mindset. It, it's all of those factors of health um, that I truly think that, you know, the healthier you can be as a human being in, in all of those areas, then the more resilient you are going to be to cope and deal with and, as I said, thrive through whatever happens to be going on in your life and in the world around you. So um, that, that's that sort of, yeah, I think resilience, we need to almost expand the concept a little bit and say, well, it's more than just um, being mentally strong. You know, it's, it's about being, being strong in all facets of health and all facets of your life. Um, and it's more than just, uh, yeah, surviving. It's about thriving. I like that. And the emotional resilience piece to it is is vital as well in terms of looking at, like we were saying there before, what the triggers are. But then when we do get triggered, how do we, so emotional agility, how do we then shift into the empowering and not let the disempowering emotions sort of rule us? And, you know, looking at AQ, the adaptability intelligence piece of that. And, you know, Darwin's theory was actually about not the strongest, but the most adaptable that survive. And I feel like, uh, it's the the adaptability that allows us to thrive because the challenges, the tsunamis, the pandemics, the adversities, the relationships, whatever it is, they're always going to be there. So when we are able to um, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually adapt and evolve, that's, I believe, what Kanye is saying there as well with the yeah. around the resilience piece. Absolutely. And, you know, there was a guy before that uh, called Lamarck, uh, who talks about they talk about Lamarckian evolution, um, and he did talk about exactly that. You know, he talked about the ability of us to adapt and evolve through our lifetimes, um, and how that could be an important component of that um, of that evolutionary process. And it's interesting to sort of see that. You know, at the time when Darwin came along, everyone went, no, nah, no, nah, all right, Darwin's got it all here. It's more to do with your genes and, and the ability to pass on those genes to the next generation. And Lamarck kind of got chucked in the bin. Um, and, then, and now we're always coming back around again, right? We're discovering things like epigenetics and saying, well, actually, there's more to it than just the genes you get passed on. It's not just whether you can pass those genes onto your offspring. It's about the environment you put those genes in and how they get used and how they get utilised. And so... If you're, uh, if you're bored one day, have a little bit of a look at Lamarckian evolution and I reckon you'll like it because it definitely fits in with that, uh, that sort of an idea. Love it. Making note of that Lamarckian evolution. <laughs> I'll definitely check that out. All right. So a little bit of a shift now uh, into more of the, the health aspect. And 
Um, you know, I've been following you for years in the the podcasting world with uh, the the wellness couch, and then with your podcast that's still going this week in wellness. And um, so when I think of Brett Hill, Dr. Brett Hill, I think of wellness because it's it's everything about about wellness. And what we've talked about is definitely wellness in everything that we just spoke about. Um, but shifting more into to the health aspect, and maybe you just covered this before with the pillars that you mentioned, but what is optimal health to you? Oh, that's a great question. I feel like I could, that could be an hour-long answer. Um, but no, but, but I think ultimately it is exactly what I said before. So, you know, when I talk about I always use resilience and wellness interchangeably nowadays uh, mm. because I think of them as exactly the same thing because, once again, I, I think people think of resilience and they think of, you know, mental resilience as an example. But, but I'd encourage people to think about, you know, what's your mental resilience like when you haven't had enough sleep? You know, what's your mental resilience like when you've had maybe one too many coffees or you're having a bit of a sugar crash, right? And so you can't unlink those things. You can't talk about your resilience without understanding that it actually involves not only your mental side, but your chemical side, your emotional side. It's all of those facets coming together. So so nowadays I really do, I think, kind of use those two things interchangeably. Um, and we talk about, like I said, you know, talk about the movement, talk about the diet, talk about the mindset, talk about the, you know, the resilience tools that you've got in your toolkit, the emotional tools you've got in your toolkit and, and, and the emotional awareness that you've got in your toolkit as much as anything. And so I think really being healthy, you know, wellness is about all of those things. You know, one of my favorites chiropractors is a guy called Dr. James Chestnut from Canada. Um, and, and I remember him talking one time and he, he said, you know, encourage people to think about it like a plant. And he said, you know, you can have a plant that you want to grow and thrive. And, it, and if you give it all of the right nutrients that it needs and all of the water that it needs, but put it in a dark corner, then depending on the plant, but you know, for most plants, they're not going to like that. They're not going to, they're not going to thrive, right? And so you need to look at each of those aspects. You know, similarly, if you give it the sunlight and the water, but not the nutrients or, you know, whichever way that you go, then, then you need to actually address it from all of those angles if you really want it to thrive, and I think that's what we're talking about in health. You know, we we live in a society that wants to reduce everything down um, and we live in a scientific paradigm that wants to reduce everything down, right? Everyone's like, well, you have to have a double-blind randomised control study or we don't believe you. And the challenge with that is the way to conduct a double-blind randomised control study is you need to remove all of the variables in order to be able to prove cause and effect. Mm. So it has to be you know, A plus B equals C. Uh, which is fine if you're talking about, you know, the properties of a metal, right? But it's not so good when you're talking about the properties of something as complex as a human being and even more complex as the environment that you put that human being in, mm. um, then there are just so many different variables that you need to consider. And so we have this sort of linear way of determining whether things work or whether they're right or not that doesn't necessarily mould into the model or, the, the you know, the person we're trying to be within this world um, and so we need to we need to have a different way of thinking about that. And ultimately, I think the answer to that is we need to have some sort of a philosophy, you know, or I mean, we all have a philosophy. We need to have a conscious philosophy is probably the more accurate way of saying that, because, you know, we all operate from some sort of a philosophy, whether you realize it or not. Um, your philosophy is the paradigm through which you see the world. But if you don't have a a vitalistic, holistic philosophy about your your body and, and about the environment around you, then you, when you see that one little piece of information, you're not going to have a context to put that into amongst the sea of information that's out there. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that, 
But information nowadays isn't the important thing because we are surrounded by information. You know, we have we have more data points of information than you know generations of people would have had in previous um, you know previous generations. Um, and so it's not our ability to to access information; it's our ability to filter that information and construct it into some sort of meaningful picture that's actually helpful and useful for us in our life um, that becomes really important. And that's where having some sort of a philosophy, some sort of a way of um, sifting through it and trying to put it together, I think, is really important. Um, and so that's you know that's really what I try and get across in terms of my my books and podcasts and those sort of things. Is well, here's you know, here's my way of viewing the world. Here's my philosophy. You know, if that makes sense to you, then you might want to use me as as one of your filters to help you find your way through the world. Um, and if it doesn't, if it doesn't fit with your philosophy, then find someone else who can help you filter through the yeah you know, the masses of information that it's out there. When you talk about philosophy, are you talking about a really broad perspective of the world or do you narrow it down to be able to say your personal philosophy um, in, in a short sentence? Oh, that's such a good question. Uh, look, I, I, think, I think you could go so many different directions with, you know, in philo- philosophers would hate me talking about philosophy, right? Because, because I do, I would say I'm definitely more of a generalist, right? I, I love reading about philosophy, but I love reading about diet. I love reading about exercise. I love reading about mindset and resilience and, and all of those different areas. So, you know, I wouldn't like to try and use, um, you know, proper philosophical constructs to try and explain what I'm saying, because uh, I think that would uh, be doing a disservice to philosophy. Um, but, but I would say, you know, if, if I was to say my, my, my core philosophy really is that, um, is a naturalist, I think, as much as anything, you know, that, that nature is... Now, our bodies are naturally designed to be healthy. Our environment is naturally designed to be healthy. Now, I think that the, our bodies and the environment we lived in evolved over millions and billions of years to be in harmony. Um, and the more we can get back towards that, then the happier, the healthier we're going to be as an individual and also as a planet. So you know, th- that would be my broad philosophy. That, that's kind of my starting point for everything. Um, you know, is it sort of taking me back towards balance and harmony from a natural perspective or is it taking me away from that? Um, and, and that's pretty much my starting point for anything I'm considering. So balance and harmony from a natural perspective. Could we just highlight for all the listeners, um, if, if we were to say, like, let's break it into three categories of uh, nutrition, mental slash emotional and physical. So we'll start with nutrition. What's two or, key, two or three key things that people can focus on for that, that balance and that kind of equilibrium aspect, regardless of whether they believe in eating meat or not? What are some yeah, yeah. like two or three key things that people should or can focus on? To, to help totally. them thrive. Well, well, yeah. Look, I think super simple. You know, it's it's about saying, well, you know, what what did our bodies evolve eating? You know, and what environment were we in as we evolved into this species that we are right now? And so it's it's saying, well, look, let's eat real food. You know, like if your if your hunter gatherer ancestors wouldn't recognise it if they walked past it, you know, then that's probably not what you want to make the bulk of your diet out of. Um, you know, I think good good quality water. Is going to be super important in that you know for for millennia we really drunk just water there wasn't much else you know we might have played around with it a little bit but the vast majority of the time we would have been consuming water um and then i think uh you know as close to the source as possible you know if you can grow it yourself great if you can't do that then maybe look for your local farmer's market you know your local farmer your local yeah and so i think you know if you stick to those three simple principles you know, I always say, you know, when it comes to a lot of our wellness stuff, you know, 98% of the results you get are from doing the simple things really well. 
you know, there's a lot of stuff around the edges that we can do to fine tune this and fine tune that and try and, you know, biohack and all of those sort of things. Uh, but I think a lot of the time we forget that, you know, the reason we see those in the media so much and the reason we're bombarded with those messages so much is because they're kind of the, the interesting things around the fringes that we can sort of look at and debate and they might be new and exciting and different, you know, research developments and all those sort of things. Um, but we don't talk about the simple stuff as much because it's kind of boring. Mm. It's like, well, you know, you know, eat meat and free veg. You know, how, how many times can you say that before people just switch off totally? You know, it's not a great headline for your, you know, glossy magazine. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's about keeping it simple is is a lot of the benefit you'll get. I want to go back to where you said eat real food, and I fully support and believe everything that you're saying and and follow that, but just to want to challenge you on eat what the ancestors would eat. So if they would walk past it, maybe we shouldn't have that, but you know, they didn't have supplements and I know packaged food isn't good, but sometimes you can get really good quality stuff that isn't processed to the crap house. And maybe there is a bit of a package. So what about when people look at it in that way and say, well, if we only ate what the ancestors eat, like that literally means just what's growing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, like I said, uh, my focus is on saying, look, let's get as close as we can towards that, mm. right? Like I'm a, I'm a hunter-gatherer living in a modern world, right? Like I'm sitting in a room right now. I've got an electric light above me. You know, I don't have it on right now, but there's an air conditioner in the other room there. You know, I'm not living in a cave and eating, you know, roots and leaves, right? There, there's a, there's a, there's a flow in here. There's a balance effect here where I say, well, okay, what's the lifestyle I want to leave, and and then also, you know, how can I get as close as possible? you know, without sacrificing all of those other areas of my life. So, you know, look, there's always a balance there. And and definitely, you know, I encourage people, if you want to get something in a packet, then just make sure you read the ingredient label, you know, what is in it. Um, and, and if you pick, you know, there are heaps of times in my life where I do that and I'm going and I'm, I'm at a, you know, a petrol station on the road to nowhere and there's limited choices there, but I'm like, you know, and sometimes I'll fast and that's totally okay. But other times I'm like, no, I really just want to eat something. And so I'll just look at the ingredient labels, pick the best one available and go with that and feel totally okay with that, right? Because once again, it's about the balance between, um, you know, the physical, the chemical, the emotional, you know, if not eating in that point in time, is going to stress me out. You know, if I'm going to have a, a sugar crash and, and then, you know, not be able to do whatever else I'm wanting to do on that day, then then there's a balancing act there as well. So it's, it's about yeah doing the best you can with what you've got really. Yeah, I love that. And I, my gorgeous wife and I, we look, we sort of adopt the 80, 20 principle where 80% of the time it's not strict. We never feel that we're strict. We're on point. We're in alimo. We understand what good health is. And yeah. um, 20% of the time we're happy to treat ourselves. And the more that, you know, the less impactful that 20% is because, yeah. you know, 20% doesn't mean that we're going to eat the all deep fried crap and just go chaos and, you know, drink ourselves under the table or anything like that. It means we enjoy and indulge a little bit. Um, and, but we know that 80% of the time we're in, you know, I can't even say complete alignment, but we're in alignment physically, mentally, yeah, emotionally yeah. and everything like that. And that's how we sort of find that the balance is really good. And sometimes we treat ourselves and it becomes a 70, 30, or maybe even a 60, 40 over the, the silly season yeah. sometimes, but we jump straight back on and we know, actually let's go 90, 10. Like let's yeah, really yeah. just rein it in right now and still absolutely enjoy it. Have our big belly laughs, fully connect everything else in alignment with that. But nutritionally, let's just wipe out all the crap that we know isn't good for us. Yeah. And, and I like the fact you clarified on that because I'm not a big fan of the 80-20 rule for exactly that reason. You know, my first book I did was called How to Eat an Elephant. And it was about small steps of continual and never-ending improvement. And so I say, well, look, if you're at 50, then just go for 55. You know, don't try and go to 80, right? Because that's going to be a massive leap for you and you're probably going to fail, right? But if, on the other hand, if you're already at 80, 
why not try it and see what 81 feels like, mm. you know, and just play with that because that could be great for you or it might be too much, you know. So I, I think that flexibility that you've spoken about is spot on that, you know, it doesn't have to be 80-20. Um, you know, if you feel like you're going to feel and function and thrive better doing 90-10, then, you know, why not play around with that and see how that works for you for a while. And, and you might, as I said, you'll do that for a while and then, you know, your mate has a buck show and you're stuck away in the country somewhere with, you know, nothing but pizza to eat. You go, well, okay, <laughs> that's this weekend. This is, yeah. a, you know, this is part of the, the 10, the 20, you know, maybe, maybe it's 10, 90 this yeah. week instead of 9 to 10, you know. And um, that happens and that's okay too. But, but yeah, I, I think if we can maintain a little bit of fluidity with that, sometimes I think the 80, 20 can be a little bit too rigid. And I think sometimes people, you know, if they are 50, 50, you know, that the, the idea of going to 80, 20 can be just setting themselves up for failure um, and ultimately leaving, leading back to the same sort of, you know, dieting syndrome that we see where people, you know, try and fail and try and fail and, and end up feeling incredibly guilty and beating themselves up and all those sort of things. When, when perhaps if they could just take, you know, as I said, small steps of continual and never-ending improvement, as the Japanese talk about with their Kaizen principle, um, then that might be a better way of going about making change as well. Yeah, that's brilliant. I love that. And that's, um, you know, the the book Atomic Habits has kind of narrowed it down to kind of dumbed it down for us Westerners from that <laughs> Japanese principle around those small yeah. steps. And it, it applies to everything. I worked in high-performance sport my whole career, working with Olympic and Paralympic athletes and AFL and um, rugby, you know, legends and, you know, at that top level, there's only room for small improvements and we're looking for that. And then we go back to our work with general public and a lot of people in business, business owners and business leaders. And even then when there's big changes to be made, we're not, you know, you set the end goal, like the Olympic cycle that we would aim for. And then you come back to saying, well, what do I need to do today that puts me on that trajectory? I'm not trying to be an right. Olympic champion tomorrow. I've got four years. We're not trying to break those business goals now. We've got a two-year, a three-year, four-year, whatever it might be. So let's take those small steps. And it applies nutritionally, physically, mentally, emotionally, business, everything. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's really important. You know, that's the other piece of the picture is that big goal. You know, I think I think it's Sony that have a 200-year plan for their business. Right. You know, the concept of having a plan for a business that extends beyond your lifetime, mm. I think is a really cool idea, right? Because if you want to extend your plan beyond your lifetime, then you have to think so differently about how you strategically approach the day-to-day, right? Like it's a totally different mindset. It can't be all about me. It's about creating the environment for everyone to thrive and having that, you know, organic growth coming up through an environment, which I think is just a fascinating way to look at it. So, yeah, I think having that, you know, it is really important to have those big goals and those big endpoints you want to get to, and then the ability to chunk it down into those, you know, small steps we just spoke about. You, you do need to have both, and, and sometimes people get a bit stuck on that, but certainly talk about that quite a lot in the book as well. What's your end goal personally with life? Do you have an age that you want to live to, or is it about thriving for as oh. long as you can? That's a good question. Uh, yeah, I'd quite like to live to 120, 130. I think 130 is probably my mark that I've got there. You know, it seems from, um, you know, a lot of the research that's out there that, you know, it, it seems to be our age is limited somewhat by the, you know, division of ourselves and the, and the replication of our genes to about 130 years of age. Um, I'm sure they'll eventually develop ways of artificially extending that, but I'm not sure I'm that keen on that. <laughs> uh, but, but I like the idea of just, you know, if, if 130 is what's possible, then that's what I'm going to go towards. And, uh, and I probably won't get there and I'm okay with that, but I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to see how close I can get. Um, and, and as importantly, if not more importantly, I'm going to thrive my way there. 
you know, yeah, so it's brilliant. like, you know, I don't want to be, you know, like many people in our society, you know, we, we often talk about how much we've increased our life expectancy by, and we forget to talk about how much we've increased our years of morbidity by. Mm. Um, and, and so actually in Australia, over the last couple of decades, we've increased our years of morbidity by more than we've increased our life expectancy, which essentially means that we're living longer, but we're having less years of quality life. Mm. Now that, that to me sounds terrible. Like I don't mm. want to have a bar of that. And, and I think we need to be really careful about the system we're, you know, working with where we're just trying to prolong life at all costs without considering quality of life, um, which, A, is a very, um, you know, not an enjoyable, I don't think, place for people to be, um, and, B, a very inefficient, expensive way of going about healthcare where we spend, you know, a huge proportion of our, uh, you know, our health dollars on the last year or two of life um, when perhaps if we invested some of that a little bit earlier on into prevention, uh, we could not only save a huge amount of money, but but hopefully gain a whole bunch of quality of life. Um, so yeah, so my thing is, you know, I want to live as long as I can, but as but thriving as much as I can. You know, my my grandma, she lived. Uh, I'm gonna say about 81. I'm not sure if that's right now. Maybe like, maybe late 70s. But you know, right up until her last year of life, she was uh, you know within in her 70s, she took out a loan against her house and bought a, a, a four wheel drive and a caravan. You know, she's really? gone travelling, right? And she learned in her 70s, she taught herself to play the piano. Mm. You know, like I look at that as an absolute inspiration. And, you know, one of the most formative conversations I ever had was, was a conversation with my grandma in her last weeks of life. You know, and I went to see her. She was living, you know, in this country. Um, and I went to see her because I was like, oh, this is so sad. You know, I'm, I'm Devo that, you know, you're, you're towards the end here. Um, and then the conversation I had with her essentially was her saying, I'm not sad. Like I'm not unhappy, you know. Wow. I want to if I if I can't live quality of life, I don't want to live any longer. Mm. If I can't go back to my house and do my gardening and play my piano and do my art and do those things that I love to do, then I'm happy. You know, I'm I'm yeah. I've had a great life. I've seen my kids and my grandkids get you know grow up, and uh, and and I've lived a great quality of life. Um, and and that was just and, and you know I can remember the the doctor came into her and sort of gave her this big lecture about how she had to you know take this drug and this drug, and she was like. She was a real naturalist before the naturalist were naturalists. You know, she she was so, I look back and think, you know, we used to laugh at her for using aloe vera for everything, you know, and now I'm like, she was so smart. She was so smart because <laughs> she just grew up in the country where it's like you didn't have the resources. You mm. had to figure it out for yourself, you know. And so, um, but, you know, this doctor was lecturing her about, you know, what she had to do and what she had to take and how they were going to prolong her life by an extra couple of weeks or a couple of months or whatever it was. And and she just wasn't interested. And, and my gran, who was always pretty straight laced, I don't remember really ever hearing her swear, but but I remember her gesturing towards the doctor as he turned his back and walked out the door. And I, I won't uh, demonstrate what it was, but <laughs> it's something I'd never <laughs> seen from my gran before. And it was incredibly humorous and it's stuck with me ever since. But But just, you know, I think that, that really shapes my ideas around, you know, it's it's not just about the the quantity of life, but the quality of life that I think is super important. Yeah, absolutely. I fully agree. And I'm, uh, I've been saying for years that I'm living till I'm 110 and I'm running when I'm 110. And, yeah. I, you know, I have the end game in mind and I reverse engineer that to say, that's why I do my intermittent fasting. That's why I use movement as medicine. That's why I look at, you know, I sink into wisdom and I look at all the things and I love learning from people like yourself around that because, I want to be. I want to be throwing my grandkids around like I'm throwing my kids yeah. around. I want to be living life to the fullest in that way. So my question to you is: I've always wondered this. 
<laughs> based on that you uh, mentioned bucks parties there before and you know the the dropping of the um the percentages at different times and i guess you've treated yourself and um you know we've we've probably reversed our potential of living to the end uh absolutely thriving based on some of that how much do you believe that those kind of periods of our life because i've had some big periods of partying and you know i still drop into you know having drinks and um, some shitty foods here and there and stuff like that. How much of that do you think is impacting us? Is it completely immeasurable or um, because we've lived that, are we still able to come back into alignment now and and have that awesome quality of life through until whether it's 100, 110, 130? Yeah, yeah. well, it's a great question. I think the answer is we don't know. Um, but, but I do think that, um, you know, sometimes we underestimate the ability of our body to heal. Um, and so I think that, you know, our bodies really are phenomenally adaptive, you know, phenomenally able to thrive and to heal through all sorts of crazy, crazy stuff, you know. And I mean, the classic is, you know, the people go, well, my, you know, my grandpa smoked a train, like a train and lived to 100, you know, and it's <laughs> like, well, isn't that just a testament to our human body, you know, that, that the phenomenal ability to adapt and to thrive through the stupid stuff that we do to it, you know, and, and once again, it's also important. I think that people understand probability, you know, that, that just because someone puts themselves at an increased risk of dying early from you know, lung cancer as an example, doesn't mean they're going to, there's always going to be a percentage of people who beat the odds, but you know, it's all about probabilities. And so I think if we think about life in terms of probabilities rather than absolutes, then that's probably the best chance we've got of answering that question, you know, is that I can't control whether I live to 130 or not, but I can control to what degree I give myself the opportunity to live healthily till 130. And so, mm. yeah, I think, you know, some of those lifestyle choices we make along the way are going to impede on that. Uh, but then once again, that can come back to then that quality of life argument is saying, well, look, you know, I mean, look, literally like tonight, I'm heading around to my mate's place. It's it's AFL finals over here. So Australian rules football for those overseas who don't know. And, uh, you know, my mate's team is playing tonight. My team's playing tomorrow night. And, uh, you know, we'll go around there. I will have a couple of drinks with my mates. You know, I know there's going to be rubbish food there. Like I've just gone and stocked up. And, and look, today I'm on the run. I have stocked up at the supermarket. You know, I haven't been to the farmer's market. I haven't been to the, you know, but I've done the best I can. You know, I've got some, uh, some nuts there. I've got some strawberries. I've got some, you know, some jerky. You know, I've kind of gone for the healthier options because I know there'll be lots of other unhealthy options there. Um, but, you know, but for me, you know, I understand you talk about longevity, you know, my good friends, Damien, uh, Damien Christoph and Marcus Pierce who do the 100 Not Out podcast. And they'll tell you that one of the key elements in societies that live for a long time is social life, um, mm. that their ability to socialize and have that social support is, is probably one of, if not the biggest element that you see common amongst those blue zones around the world where they have the highest number of centenarians in the world. So, um, you know, so that then feeds into that. Like that's part of it as well. And I'm not saying you can't do it, right, because I had eight years of not drinking at all. Uh, and I had probably during that eight years, I was probably probably stricter than I am now in terms of diet and stuff. Not, not a huge difference, but probably a little bit stricter. Um, and I still did go to Bucks parties and I still did catch up with my mates and watch footy and I still did go out dancing till three in the morning. So, you know, I'm not saying it's not possible. You can do that. But it's about just, you know, finding that balance that works for you and sort of playing with it. Um, and I'm constantly playing with it. Like, I've, it's not mm. a, you know, it's a journey, not a destination. I constantly go through periods of kind of going, well, what would happen if I went a little bit stricter here? Or what would happen if I leave? Yeah. 
release it a little bit there and, and just sort of play with it and see what happens and find what works for you. Because ultimately it's going to be different in different stages of life as well. You know, like I've got a, I've got an 18 month old at the moment. And so in the first, you know, 12 months of my 18 months old life, you know, I was having way more coffee than I probably ever had in my life. Um, just as a result of, you know, the things that I wanted to be able to keep doing and achieving and producing in, in other aspects of my life. And then once he got to sort of a year old, probably a little bit older than a year old, I sort of went, okay, you know, now I think it's time to dial that back a bit. So then I went a month without any coffee and actually had a couple of months without any coffee um, just to, to sort of reset a little bit and then find a sort of happy equilibrium again. So, um, you know, it, it's about playing with it. I think there's, there's the long answer there. <laughs> no, I love that. And I, I relate to you. I've got a seven month old bub and a two and a half year old and, the coffee aspect is something that I have increased through this bubble, baby bubble. And I did it the same with my son and same thing. And once I got yeah. through that, I'm like, I don't, I'm not relying on the coffee. Now I'll be totally honest. Like I'm relying on coffee most days now, yeah. well, you know, when yeah, we're yeah. doing this transition <laughs> and I'm okay with that. Cause it's, it's organic, good quality coffee and it's often black coffee. So I just don't get thrown out of my fasting windows and things like that. But at the same yeah. time to be able to pull it back in. So that's brilliant. And um, I want to shift gears a little bit just to finish off. And uh, I know this could be a whole podcast in itself and you you talk <laughs> about this anyway, but talking about the adaptability of of the human body and what it can handle and, and going through all of that, um, what we're experiencing in the world at the moment and, and especially in Australia is this great divide by people being forced to... Um, forced to believe or forced to actually act on um, putting something into their body that... We don't actually know whether it's the it's a good thing or not. You know, I, it's it's been said by the people who released this that um, it's when we don't actually know if it's fit for human consumption. Therefore, um, it's only available. You know, as uh, if it's a if it's a pandemic or something like that, which it is. So um, it's it's a crazy times in all of that. And let me just preface by saying, some of the people closest to me who I love the most have um, had the jab. And some of the people closest to me who I love the most are choosing not to have the jab. I have zero judgment about whether people have it or not. I just, um, uh, I support people in knowing that there's different reasons why people have it. And um, I also understand there's a lot of fear factor in around this. So zero judgment on that, but I just want to look at it from a health perspective. I heard this great saying by Peter Sage, when you're inside the tin can, you can't read the label. And I feel like that there's a lot of people inside the tin can that are making a decision, but the, um, and there's a lot of people on the outside of the tin can that are reading the label and making the decision either way as well. So there's no right or wrong to it in my perspective. It's just an understanding of what's, um, you know, what what else is available. And I like to say that whenever we have a choice, it means we have um, two or more things to to look at. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a choice. So when there's two or more things to look at, I like to look at those two or more things and look at the facts on both sides and look at the bullshit on both sides and sink into my wisdom, get out of my busy mind and just intuitively align it with my values, my philosophy um, and what I stand for and then make the decision from there. So when I do that, I know that it's the right decision for me and I trust that when other people do that, it's the right decision for them, whatever choice that they make. So in terms of health, where do you stand with, um, you know, around all of that i know i've opened up a big can of worms there um, yeah, yeah. And, and maybe even just talk about the grayness of what we're experiencing as opposed um in terms of what's what we're kind of exposed to with our yeah, choices yeah so yeah i mean there's a few points around that you know first of all is that 
you know, I'm an APRA regulated health practitioner here in Australia. Um, and so essentially what that means for us is that we are not allowed to have a position on vaccination um, unless it is 100% in alignment with the government of the day. You know, so we are. What do you mean by much, a position? Is that an opinion or a thought or an yeah, expression or a? All of the above, right? Okay. So I mean, I'm, I mean, we can have a thought, right? But but as soon as that thought becomes um, public, yeah, yeah, as soon okay. as that becomes expressed uh, in almost any way, you know, whether that be, um, I mean, person to person is, is generally uh, a bit safer because um, you know no one's recording your conversations and those sort of things. But as soon as it becomes you know, in any way public, whether it's on your website, whether it's in social media, those sort of things, um, then, then yeah, you run you run the risk. And, and I was literally just talking to a chiropractor today who's, you know, had the sort of uh, the word from above and had to remove a whole bunch of posts from his social media and a whole bunch of stuff from his website uh, because they said to him, look, if, if you don't do this, then you're going to lose your license as a chiropractor, you know. And so then you are forced to make a decision of, you know, yes, I can help people. There's my son behind me. Hey, g'day, uh, g'day, yeah. little fella. <laughs> Sorry, um, I'm running in that, <laughs> that, you know, that, that, that where do I, you know, what, how, can I, how can I be of most benefit to society? You know, is, is, you know, there's these other things that I do that are really great and beneficial and positive as a chiropractor, as a podcaster, as an author, those sort of things. Um, you know, how far am I willing to go in a, and risk losing the ability to do that, which is a, annoying thing to have to think about um, and a frustrating thing to have to think about. And certainly there have been times and, and you know, at the time of my rock bottom was a big one where I had been dealing with many challenges with APRA, which I speak about in the book as well. Um, and I was very much, you know, having that debate of whether it was worth being a chiropractor anymore, like whether I would mm. be of more benefit and could have more impact by not being a chiropractor and therefore being able to say exactly what I wanted. Um, so uh, that's the, my first answer to that. My second answer to that is, you know, I think one of the problems we have in our society as a result, I think largely of social media, um, is that we have a real segregation of society and we have a lot of real black and white thinking. And so what happens on social media is that you surround yourself with people who think like you mm. and it becomes a real it becomes a real thought bubble, you know. And so um, we tend to start to think that, you know, everyone who thinks like me is fantastic and great and right and everyone who thinks different to me is is bad and wrong and evil. Mm. And, and I think that is going on big time around the world right now. And, and we, for many people, we seemingly have lost our ability to think in shades of grey. And, and so I think what we need to remember is that, you know, there are good things about vaccination, there are bad things about vaccination. You know, we know that for some people there are adverse effects. You know, we know that for other people there are seemingly, um, you know, reduced risk of, you know, passing on a disease or contracting a disease or those sort of things. And so um, it's important to remember, I think, that there are two sides to the equation. We don't get lost too far down the rabbit hole of that black and white thinking. I think especially as um, health practitioners and health communicators, uh, I think it's important that we don't present a black and white view because you're never going to change someone's mind with a black and white view. You know, that, that if you mm. tell them that that is just evil and that everyone who thinks that way is evil, then it's going to be really hard for them to see you as an impartial person that they would want to go to for a balanced viewpoint and some balanced advice. And so, you know, I think it is really important that we have an understanding of that shades of grey. And, and, you know, you'll see this if you listen to this week in wellness podcast. You know, I've just released an episode last week all around herd immunity um, and so whether, in fact, we can get there. Um, and I think it's a really important conversation to have. So I'm really passionate about informed consent in healthcare, mm. right? And everywhere we go, we're taught about informed consent in healthcare. And this is what we need to do. 
uh, and that the gold standard of evidence-based medicine is that it should be a combination of what we see in the research, right, as well as practitioner experience, which I think is really important and is being pushed under by these regulations about what mm. we can and can't say, and patient preference, right, which is also being pushed under at the moment where we're not necessarily being removed yet from that opportunity, uh, but we're certainly seeing an environment where it's being made as difficult as possible for you to make a free choice without not letting you make a free choice, if that mm. makes sense. Um, and so I, so I don't think that is the gold standard of, um, of medicine. You know, I don't think that is the gold standard of public debate. Mm. Um, you know, I think we can do better. And, and to be quite frank, I think it's dangerous from a scientific point of view because ultimately the scientific theory um, is dependent on hypotheses. Right. The absolute bedrock foundation of all scientific advancement is alternative hypotheses. If we aren't able to have an alternative hypothesis, if people aren't allowed to share alternative hypotheses, then how do we advance? How do we move forward when it comes to medicine? You know, if people weren't allowed to say, hey, mm. this smoking thing, maybe that's not good for you. Even yeah, though my I'll doctor see. recommends camel, maybe smoking isn't good for you. Maybe that's something we should check and maybe something we should test. Right. But if those practitioners were not allowed to have that view because it was outside of the, the current medically accepted norms, then, then that leaves us in a really dangerous situation where we may not be able to continue advancing our knowledge and advancing our medicine in the way we have up until this point. So, you know, I, I think it's important that we have, that we acknowledge those shades of grey, that we acknowledge both sides of the equation so we can have a proper rational debate about it because it's only when you are able to communicate both sides of the equation that you can actually ever give someone a proper informed consent so that mm. then they can make an informed decision about what they want to do. And then I think it's from there, I think it's really important to understand and to acknowledge that everyone around you is making the best decision they can mm. with the information they've got at hand. Okay. And so to not judge people based on the decision they've made, to not beat people up based on the decision exactly. they've made, to not, you know, just to say, Hey, you know, I love you too. I know that that's the right decision for you. You know, I would love to help you, um, you know, make an informed decision. And, and if ever you want to know some information about that, come to me. I'd love to help you out as best I can. Um, and if you're happy with the decision you've made and you've done your research and you're good, then then good on you. Like you're making the best decision you can with what you know, and, and I'm going to help you out along the way. And we're still going to be mates. Exactly. We're still going to be mates. Then the great divide wouldn't be happening. Like we said, that regardless, that's the right decision. But there's um, what we're seeing is a lot of fear pushed into people to say, well, actually, if people aren't making the same decision as you, then they're part of the problem. Like when we see government organizations saying that, it's a force yeah. of the great divide. So um, I, I want to acknowledge you for for the, for the way that you do share those things, because I've listened to that podcast and I've read the post on that. And I know um, the, you, know, you and your wife shared a post as well about the statistics of, you know, the amount of cases, the amount of tests, the amount of deaths and the 99.97% chance of survival rate if, you live, if you're under 70. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think they're really, really valid stats for people to look at because what I, what saddens me, I live in Sweden here this year and, and our trip just keeps getting extended because we can't get back into Australia anyway. So, yeah. um, but what happens, what I experience here is they treat a virus like a virus and, um, you know, life goes on and people, our neighbors, I can see, you could probably see their house out that window there, uh, here on zoom, a family of 10 and they all had COVID. And yeah. we didn't send them um, disrespect or hate or judgment. We sent them love. There's hundreds of people in this small country town that we're in that have had it. Whereas 
in Australia, I hear of in a small country town, there was one person that had it and they had police um, outside 24-7 for their two weeks of, to make sure that they didn't leave. They treat it like a zombie apocalypse as opposed to a virus. So it's really sad to see that the, the government supports um, supports this aspect of it and I can understand the fear. Um, so I do want to acknowledge you for, for sharing some of those facts that can help settle a bit of that fear for people. Yeah, well, look, and it was fascinating, you know, like sharing those facts, which were, um, you know, sourced from the Australian government websites. Um, and yet one of the first comments that I got underneath that was, I can't believe you're sharing this. Don't you realise you're an APRA registered practitioner? Um, I'm going to report you to APRA. Like that was literally one of the first comments that came under that. So that kind of tells you the world we're living in where yeah. by sharing facts that come from the Australian government that are just statistics without any commentary, without yeah. any, you know, without, without anything from me saying this is what that means, it's just here's some stats, make up your own mind. Mm. Uh, but that's the first point of call that people go to uh, is somewhat scary. And I think the other thing that we need to recognise in that is that the reason or one of the reasons people see this as so fearful and one of the reasons that people see this as such a threat is a lack of resilience right and and so there is that element of fear in our society but there's also that element of lack of health where mm. we are in such a chronically ill society with such huge rates of chronic often lifestyle related diseases and we know that those are the precursors that make us far more likely to die of this virus that we've got going around. That um, I think it's really important that we understand that, you know, a big part of this picture is coming back again to that resilience, right? Like I'm not saying this isn't a bad virus. I'm not saying it's not killing people. But I'm saying that if you look at the statistics, once again, cold, hard facts around the number of those people who do have those chronic lifestyle-related diseases and what that does to your risk of dying from this virus then I think that's a really important part of the conversation that we have to have, not just in terms of this virus now, but even more so in terms of every other virus that's going to come towards us in the future, that if we don't do something about these chronic disease states that mm. we exist in as a society, then, yeah, we are going to be susceptible to everything that comes along. Um, we need to address that. We need to be working as a society to create healthier, more resilient individuals so that we've got a better chance of dealing with this in healthier ways because as you said, we, we know that there are effects of this division. We know that there are effects of these lockdowns. We know that there are effects of all the restrictions that are going on in our society right now, which are harmful to people economically, harmful to people in terms of their ongoing health. And so we need to be able to say, well, what are we going to do next time? How can we do better next time? And I think that, that, that health status and those chronic lifestyle-related diseases are a huge part of the equation that we really need to make sure we consider. Well said. Well said. I really love that. And um, I, like I said, I probably should have asked that question first and we could uh, have a whole podcast on that. We could jam on it, but I'm very, very mindful of time. And what I would love to say to all the listeners is um, jump on and follow Brett because sharing the facts like that, I think is a really good way to do it because there's enough opinions and judgments out there from both sides of the fence. Uh, and I think just if you're getting facts that aren't being reported in the in the actual news, I haven't watched the news for years and, yeah. and refused to, to expose myself to that kind of stuff. So I'm looking at 
at the facts. What what is the Australian government releasing that we need to really look at? What is um, other functional medicine practitioners and health experts and things like that looking at that aren't being exposed in different areas and and not just opinions and judgments, but just facts and science and um, epidemiologists and the people who created these uh, vaccines or have worked in you know certain organisations. What are they actually saying about all of that? And then let's look at the other side as well. And um, I think it just helps create. Um, a clearer picture with that grayness, like you said, not just the black and white aspects of it. So once again, I want to acknowledge you for that and um, uh, and also acknowledge you for uh, going and enjoying yourself tonight for the for the AFL finals <laughs> and I'm going to let you go with that. But before I wrap up, where, where can the listeners find you to, to keep following that, to get the book, to, to absorb your abundance of knowledge and wisdom? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, just head to drbretthill.com. That's my website. Um, you'll see links on there to go through to the podcast. Uh, obviously, if you want to listen to the podcast, any good podcast player uh, will have This Week in Wellness on there. Um, so you can find that on there. You'll find all the books on my website. So just hit the shop link. It'll take you through to there. Um, and obviously, um, you know, my exercise and resilience mentoring that I do, you know, if you're interested in um, doing some mentoring with a great group of people and, and some regular mentoring sessions to help build your resilience in all those aspects of life, um, then you can find the links through that on the website too. Brilliant. Brett, you ooze optimism and belief and wellness, not perfection, but wellness. (laughs) And I want to thank you for your time again, mate. And uh, the work that you're doing is not only well needed, but well received. So keep shining your abundant, optimistic wellness light to the world, my man. Thanks, mate. Pleasure. Boom. There you go. What a genuine legend seeping wisdom into the world. Be sure to follow Brett for all his wellness expertise, Uh, check out his new book and maybe think of someone who you believe could really do with that kind of influence in their life. Uh, Maybe they've hit rock bottom or they feel like they're on their way to rock bottom. It could really be a life changer or even a life-saving gift. Also, if you're keen to hear more wisdom about the pandemic facts that aren't really being shared in the mainstream media, Tune into Brett's podcast for some great non-judgmental perspectives on both sides of the equation. If you found value in this episode, I'd be super grateful if you shared it with others that you know will get value from it as well. Uh, And also, if you'd love to support this podcast more, I'd be super grateful if you can take 60 seconds and jump onto your podcast app and give it a five-star rating and a quick review. This helps massively for me to keep getting great guests into your ear holes. Keep thriving, legends. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.